Hey, this is Jeremy. You're listening to the Negotiating Life Podcast. Today, Jamil and I are back having conversations between a black man and a white cop. Today, we'll talk defunding the police, training for the police, and I'll even answer some of your questions about my responses last week. I'm really excited, man, for, I guess, episode number two. Who thought that this would be a thing? And it's now a thing to where... Um, you know, people have, have uh, enjoyed at least the first episode, Jeremy, but I think that we were a little uh, maybe coy and a little bit easy on one another. And right. and, um, and I think I think it was a great idea to give people uh, a platform to where they could ask their own questions and then have us attack those questions too to be a little bit more interactive. So I'm excited about today for all of those. I think last week's video was shared by a lot of people a viewed lot, yeah. by thousands of people, which um, I figured it would be. Uh, but for anyone that's sort of joining us, uh, my name is Jamil Frazier. Um, I am here in Southern California. I'll just give a little bit of the background about me. And Jeremy can talk about uh, himself. But, you know, um, I'm here in North County, San Diego. I'm a certified health coach, entrepreneur, author, um, and um clearly black and so uh, there's a lot of challenges that are going on right now and um you know jeremy had reached out to me uh, a couple of weeks ago and we just started a dialogue and then we said well, why don't we just bring this on and kind of talk about it and so last week was really the first kind of uh, conversation publicly and it seemed like it was um we started off uh, really, really good, I would say. A lot of people kind of um, were were interested in hearing more and seeing more. Thus, we are back. So, Jeremy, you kind of want to introduce yourself? and Yeah, for sure. My name is Jeremy. I'm also an entrepreneur and a business leader, as well as I happen to be a, in law enforcement. Um, I live in Southern California, and um, I've actually met Jamil. We met each other through business and through... Um, um, taking part in some some live events together is how we first actually met, and I immediately had a just a, felt a real connection to him and to you, Jamil, and um, just we we tend to I wouldn't say we see everything eye to eye, but we tend to be like spirits as it relates to growing personally um, and having a desire to just become the best versions of ourselves that we can possibly be, and so um, that relationship is what led to after all that's been going on in our in our culture in our society what i am learning is it's been going on for so long but now that as we're seeing true um, act i believe true action taking place it led me to want to learn more and wanting to not be ignorant of what is what has been going on around me and so because i trust you i reached out to you and um I reached out after several some issues that I was personally involved in, some things that actually happened personally, but um, and so that's why I reached out and we had this conversation and and like you said, I think last week both of us were a little bit um, I don't want to use the word hesitant, hesitant or timid, but just maybe soft and um, and kind of maybe guarded out of for me guarded out of fear of of saying the wrong thing. Um, or offending someone or, or anything along those lines. And, and so, um, and I was sharing with you after, I think that I'm going to say the wrong thing. That's, that's just conversation. That's what happens. Um, it happens when someone gets married. It happens when someone has a funeral. It happens when anytime that there's anything that like is an emotional moment or anything at all, People are going to say the wrong thing. So I told you, I'm like, hey, I'm going to say the wrong thing, but let's just go ahead and have the conversation and let's do this. So I'm excited yeah. for today. Me too. So um, so you guys, we will um, we'll drop a link here in the comments to where you can go and ask yeah. more questions um, if you do have them. And um, I think that interaction is important. And I think it really helps us too. And that's kind of where we left off last week. And last week, I, I think we left off on a really good um, um, on a really good point because we started talking about some sort of I don't even know if you would call it reforms, but ways that we can improve um, maybe uh, part of the police justice system. And 
we started talking about some sort of um, don't even have the title for it, but police coaches or something like that. And I thought that that was fascinating because we were kind of getting to a point of where, you know, we were talking about ways of improving things. And I think that's, that's what the genesis of this whole conversation was about is how can we actually improve? Um, um, how can we improve uh, not only race relations, how can we improve understanding? Um, how can we improve a system if it's broken? Um, and how can we make things better? So I guess that's kind of where we left off. Where yeah. are we going to pick up, man? You want to just jump well, we, into it? Yeah, I want to encourage you guys. If you have questions, I mean, please continue to drop them. These questions are really helpful. I think they're really good. And I think that's where we'll we'll start is with a couple of questions. Um, some of these are for both of us. Some of these are definitely more for me, I guess. Um, but so the first one just says, are police officers undertrained? When I compare them to the military, it, it seems like they see a lot more action, which I don't know if I agree with that from some of what I've heard from some of my military folks, maybe more action over time. But man, when, it, when someone in the military sees action, they see action, but they get way less training or they get way less budget is what this person said. So, so when you hear calls to defund the police, it seems like that might, might make things worse. Would love to hear more about what police training looks like. So I'm going to start with what I believe Jamil would do. And that's going to be, I'm going to ask him a question. And so my question for you is, Jamil, when you hear defund the police, what does that mean to you? I don't know. Um, you know, I, I try to think about things and I try to speak on things that, um, that I kind of know about. And I have no idea what the funding looks like with uh, police departments at all. Um, from my personal standpoint, I would just imagine whenever I hear defund anything, I hear take money away. Mm -hmm. And so when I hear defund the police department, to me, um, in my mind, that means um, start stripping away uh, resources, whether that's um, economical resources, maybe that's manpower, um, maybe that's uh, any sort of ability that is going to allow the police department to um, to sort of um, um, maybe have the capital to do the things that they need to do. Obviously, from you know growing um, a substantial business, which I have over the last eight years, to where we have thousands of people uh, within uh, my organization. Uh, there's a lot of things that come into um, growing any sort of organizations that cost a, a lot of money. And so when I hear defund, I think about it in kind of the stipulations of my business. If someone was going to defund the way that I ran my business, what would that mean? And so when I hear that, I hear, um, I hear maybe in some ways it's, 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 it's actually a good thing. You know, I, I think that I think that oftentimes um, one of the things that we see is we see organizations, we see churches, we see businesses, we see government getting so um, married to one way of doing things and not doing a great job of taking care of their own um, um, uh, financial statements. And one of the things that I've actually enjoyed about um, what's happening now with COVID is it's forcing people to look at how they actually spend their money and run their businesses or any sort of organization, whether that's uh, uh, privately held or, or held by the government. So I've actually have enjoyed watching people have to be a little bit more um, um, think outside of the box with the limited resources that they have. And oftentimes you will see um, companies, organizations, uh, even governments because of having to think um, on a different level, you'll start to see them um, um, move forward and progress rather than degress. So when I hear defund, I simply hear um, taking away uh, resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I, when I first started hearing it as a as a police officer, my first 
my first response was, oh, that means they want to get rid of us. Like that's like right away. My, oh, they just want to get rid of cops. So we, we want, we want anarchy. And I think a lot of people think that, I think what you said is like resources. It's a change of resources. It's a, it's a looking at how you're using the money. Um, as I've, I've done not a lot of research, but when I saw the question, I'm like, ah, I might as well make sure I know a little bit about what I'm going to talk about or what I'm going to share on. And someone in the, in the Facebook live commented on, it's a reallocating of money um, away from one and towards another. So it's not just not spending the money, it's spending the money differently. And um, I will tell you, this is probably not the best place to do your research, but I think they do good articles. And I, I read an article from Rolling Stone magazine on what it means to defund the police. And sure. <laughs> not, they're just not just rock and roll folks. So, um, and it is that idea that says, let, what if we took this, a portion of the money and we removed it from the budget of law enforcement, which in a lot of places, the law enforcement budget it is expensive to have law enforcement. It just is the, the needs of the, of the, the requirements, the tools, the training, which we'll talk about, but the, it's just expensive. And what if we put it towards other areas that have need and therefore, because these areas are improved, there's less of a need for law enforcement in those areas. The chief of police of Dallas, after, um, after the massive shooting that happened in Dallas, if you remember, there's the police, uh, there was the shooting. Um, it was actually during a protest, if you remember, and he actually came out after that shooting and there was a, there was a kind of a shift in feelings for for a season at least of like uh, under just between both sides if you will um and he said one of the things is we're being asked to do more in law enforcement um, than we were ever supposed to do we're dealing with homelessness we're dealing with mental health we're dealing with all of these things that were that i'm not a psychiatrist i'm in law enforcement uh, and, and, and dealing with mental health, I, there's people that go to, they become doctors to do that. And you're asking law enforcement officers to be the first response to mental health. And so that was one of the things that he talked about. So my understanding of defund the police is says, well, what if we take, I'm going to use big numbers. What if we take a hundred million dollars off the budget and we invest that hundred million dollars into mental health care, then you don't need as many peace officers responding for mental health care because they're getting help other places or we create an entire thing an entire department that actually does the crisis response without the law enforcement there and so therefore you're not someone said we're not abolishing police we are reallocating resources so you don't need as many as many police because they're not responding to as many things so when someone says what are your thoughts on defund the police for me as a police officer, I, I actually like the theory. I think the theory is really good that, yeah, I, 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 when I was, and now that I am back on the street, a large percentage of, and I don't want to give any exact percentages, but I'm going to tell you like more than 50% of the calls that I respond to are for mental health issues that someone is having. What do you mean by that? Um, it's going to a call where someone is having literally a mental health crisis or the person has a mental health disorder and they're, and they're, and they need psych psychiatric response more than they need law enforcement response. But we respond to those. I mean that I, I, I am actually what's called PERT trained. So PERT is a psychiatric emergency response team. So you're, you're teamed up with a clinician and they ride with the law enforcement officer, which is great in theory, but there's very few of those. And even though I'm PERT trained, I don't have a clinician that rides with me because there's not enough clinicians. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, but a large number of calls I go to are someone who is, is having a mental health crisis needs to get to a hospital. Maybe they're a danger to themselves or they might be a danger to others or they are gravely disabled. Those are the three things that fit into our criteria in law enforcement is someone who needs to be um, evaluated for mental health needs and care would be, are they, are they a danger to themselves? Like wanting to commit suicide. Are they a danger to sure. others? Are they violent or are they gravely disabled? They're unable to take care of themselves anymore. They don't know what day of the week it is. They don't know where they are at. They haven't eaten in days. 
those are the three criteria that we have that we can actually step in and do something. Those are not the answers to their problems. It's just a solution for the moment. The, the things that law enforcement can do. So I don't believe that police officers, when they even sign up to go into law enforcement, not that they, they shouldn't be trained, they should be trained because we're going to always have these, these issues that we deal with. But that's not what you, that's not what you employ law enforcement for. So I'm all about, there's not enough resources for mental health care. There's not, there, there is, there is just not enough that like people need help in, 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 as it relates to mental health, they need help. And I don't believe we provide enough resource. I don't believe there's enough help for them. So in theory, if you were to take a hundred million dollars and put it towards mental health care and actually create good resources, I'd be all about it. I think where I struggle is how do you do that in the in-between? I also have a distrust for how the government will actually use the money. So I think if we take a hundred million, I'm, I personally think that maybe 20 million will actually get used for what it's supposed to be used for. And the other 80 million is going to go to a bunch of different things that who knows what it was for. Um, but in the meantime, do we take away that money and therefore you've now lost the resources that law enforcement has, either whether that's in, whether that's in human resource, whether that's in training resource, whether that's an equipment use resource, you've lost it because it's now out of their budget while you're training up somebody else, what happens in the middle? What do you do in the middle? Um, because those issues are still going to exist. And those things that we are still responding to, whether it's, whether it's um, not just mental health care, whether it's relationship. I mean, I go, to, I go to calls for families who are having a hard time getting their kid to go to school. And they, they call me and go, can you make my son go to school? You know, for me as a, as a cop, one of the things I think to myself is I can't fix in 15 minutes what, what's been created over 15 years, right? So like, but th- we go to all those kind of calls. So as you're recreating these social services that should help, what do you do in the meantime? So I think that's my concern with defunding the places. There's no, there's no meantime. As it relates to training, sorry, I'm taking a long time on this. As it relates to training, training is different across the country. So... I personally watch things like Live PD when it was in existence or cops. And sometimes I just put my head down because I go, I cannot believe that that's how they're trained to respond to things. I can't believe the, the lack of officer safety there. I can't believe the way that person is handling that call. But my training is different than their training. I will say here in, in where I work, um, and I know last week you wanted to talk about something that I heard, so I'm trying to be very guarded about where I work. But where I work, mm-hmm. um, we have a high level of training and high expectation of training. We are recertified. There's There's been a call for like police officers to get recertified continuously. We actually have that. It's a requirement. So I go to I go to classes continuously throughout throughout my career, always having to prove that I'm still able to do the things I do. One of those trainings that my department has had since well, for a long time, I don't even remember the date, but we have a de-escalation training that we are required to go through continuously. Um, we are cr- constantly having to go through learnings, learning domains where we're things are being updated and new trainings. We do quarterly trainings in our stations that are re- that we are required to go through as part of our training. So do I think most cops are well-trained? As far as my culture is concerned, yes. But I also know that the standard may be different where I work than where it is other places. And, and that's something I can't speak to because I only know what I've experienced here and what I've seen through watching, like, like I said, through watching like live PD and I go, Oh no. Um, Can you talk about that? Why is the, why is it different trainings for different places? Mm -hmm. And what is the, um, um, what is, the standard that's sort of upheld within the industry. Yeah, I don't, uh, I know that state to state is where, is how things are. Um, the standards are set state to state. I do know that. So for example, I mean, I've already said I'm in California. So in California, we have what's called post peace officer service training. I always mess up on what it actually means, but it's peace officer, something training standards and training, I believe standardized training. Our post requirements have a certain level and expectation. 
I can take, at, at least when I went into law enforcement almost a de- decade ago, I can take my post certificate from California and I can lateral or transfer to almost any department in our nation. And they'll go, oh, your post is good. We'll take it. That is not mm-hmm. true coming to California. Our standards are higher. So in my academy, someone asked what, you know, what, what trains like in my academy, there were, there was a, a, an officer from Las Vegas, from Nevada, California does not accept their training. So you have to go through our training again to make sure that you are at the standard we want you to be on. So he had to go through an entire academy with us because he wanted to move to California and work here. So the, the training, the standards are set. My set, my understanding is per the state you're in and each state sets their own, their own laws. And, and some of that's because laws are different from state to state. A simple thing like a front tent of a window is illegal in California if it's too dark and it may not be illegal in Oklahoma, but it is here front. I mean, I'm just using traffic things, but a front license plate is a different law than in California. So, so the part of it is that there's different laws for every state. So therefore there's different training for every state. Um, as it relates going to the training that has to do with human capital, mm-hmm. uh, training from you working with a civilian, you working with people in the uh, community, um, um, interpersonal relationships, cognitive um, connectivity, those sorts of things. How much, because like I'm in the area of health and well-being, as you know, we have a lot of physicians that um, are part of, you know, even what I do and a big part of what I do will talk about uh, the damaging effects of being overweight and being obese. And it just so happens that even with all of these years of medical training, um, uh, the training that goes into obesity or nutrition, things like that, is extremely minimum compared to all the other areas of training. Um, So I'm I'm just curious in terms of the human capital, what does that training look like and how much of that training is actually done? Yeah. I, again, I can only speak for my culture. Um, but it, we have ongoing de-escalation training. Um, the, they just sent it out as a reminder, which I think is good. Um, but they just sent out a long, a long, because of what's going on and it should be, but it, but even around my briefing room at work, everyone's like, yeah, this isn't new. We've been doing this, but our, we talked, I think last week, a little bit about culture is sometimes different than system. And so I have benefited from a really great culture. Um, however, I know that that culture doesn't go everywhere. So in my culture, we are trained a ton on how to interact with people. There is, there was a trainee that came through the, the, where I work who had to rephase. So if you go, as you go through training, you go through your academy training and then you go through phase training. Um, academy training is like, I call it sanitized training because everything's fake, right? You're in, you're inside of scenarios, you're inside of classrooms, you're inside of all of these, these things that are sanitized. I'm safe. At the end of the day, I know that that guy is going to stop hitting me in the DTAC or defensive tactics training. He's going to stop hitting me if I, if I have a hard time, right? And he's, he's going to let up because you're taught, like, what do you do when someone attacks you? I know that it's sanitized. They don't want me to get hurt. Now, when you go from sure. regular training from your academy, then you go into phase training where you're actually working in the public with real, real people. There, there was at one time, in my own personal experience, a trainee that had a really difficult time with interacting with the public, handled people inappropriately in the way he spoke to people. He didn't do anything physically wrong. He just couldn't have a conversation without it almost leading to an argument. And it was the way, it was the way he stood. It was the way he spoke to people. It was some of that was what we would call officer presence, but it was misused because what they'll teach you in in an academy is that your first line of, of force, your first, your first use of force is actually your presence. Like being an authority, right? That, I mean, you know that if I, if I come up in my uniform, there's a certain amount of presence there that is, that is enough for some people to go, okay, this person's an authority. That's, I'm just going to listen, do my thing. We're going to move on. And he just didn't have interpersonal skills. 
And so before he was allowed to move on, he actually was rephased. In other words, he had to go back through his phase training on that, in that um, he couldn't move on to the next phase until he had gotten better at just interpersonal skills alone. It's something that we're, we're um, graded on, I guess you would say, we're evaluated on is how are we interpersonally? And so I would say there could be more. I think there should be more, but there is that training there. I just, it's definitely not as much as understanding the laws that you're enforcing. It's definitely not as much as how do I, how do I survive and how do I affect an arrest? Those things are more. I mean, I guarantee you, I went through more defensive tactics training than I did at, um, I went through more defensive tactics training than I did through my verbal judo, if you will. So I went through more judo training, which is not real. We don't do judo training, just to be clear. But I went through more physical judo training than I went through verbal judo training. Um, and so, and because those, those that that's basic survival skills, defensive tactics. If you can't defend yourself, you're never going to survive. I do believe there should be even more of that. 100%, I believe that. Because I see that I have been in less uses of force than other guys who don't have those same kind of skills that I have. 100%. I call it talking someone into handcuffs. My goal is to, if I, if I know someone has to be arrested, my goal is to talk them into handcuffs. Because it's just, at the end of the day, it's better for everybody. Everybody. And so there should be more um, in that regard as regards to training. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, and I think you got a future book, which is titled talking into handcuffs. And I want to be part of that project. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I love that you always think in terms of books. (laughs) I do. Um, yeah, you know, it, it was it was interesting because de-escalation, I, I suppose, is is part of what um, what I was meaning by uh, the training that goes into um, you know dealing with uh, I guess civilians or our community members and things like that. And it seems to me that that's called de-escalation. You know, one of the trainings that I think uh, one of the talks or speeches or whatever you want to call it that I give is, you know, skills with people, um, which I think that, I think if more people knew that than how to do that, then overall the world, the world would be a much, much better place. Absolutely. And I was curious though, because, you know, communities are, are different depending on who, who makes up those communities. So I was wondering if it was, if the training was um, was changed depending on what sort of uh, cultural, historical, or ethnic backgrounds actually made up those particular uh, communities based off of those skills with people. How do you uh, effectively interact with them? How do you socialize with them given that um, communities are gonna be different based off of culture? That, that's a great question. I don't know that I have a good answer for it because um, I only know the training that I have, right? And I would say I work right. in a very diverse area um, and yet there's places that we, because I work um, in not one particular city, but multiple areas, there are places that are extremely diverse that, that we oversee. And then there's places that are completely, in my opinion, not diverse at all. Um, and... And so I think a lot of our training where it's been developed, actually a lot of what came out of like when it comes to safety training and things like that, we have been the leaders in safety training because back in the, well, back in the eighties, there was, there was a whole lot of cops that were getting hurt and we in our area developed some training that that within was implemented nationwide tra- safety wise, not every, not every department. Like I said, I still put my head down when I see some of the things that, that people are doing and doing on television, but, but we developed that training um, because of what was happening. We knew there had to be a better way. And so um, I think for us, 
just like anything, I think training oftentimes is, unfortunately, is reactive. So it took a lot of cops getting hurt and killed before we said, oh, we need to create, here's an example, it's called contact and cover. A lot of people will ask, why are there so many of you here? Like whenever, like, like if I, if I make a stop on the street, I'll get like, there, I, even when I was a traffic cop, um, if I stop somebody for running a stop sign and if I'm there for any length of time, whether it's because the computer's slow or I'm just slow at writing a ticket or whatever, there's going to be one of my partners is going to show up. But that's not because we think the person's bad. That's because we are trained in what's called contact and cover. So there's always, we always try to have two people. I never go alone. The one time I went alone, got into a fight with a bank robber who almost killed me. So I, I, I never go alone. So it, so a lot of people are like, why do you need so many people here? Well, it's not that because of you, it's actually part of our training for safety for us, no matter what the situation. Contact, one of us is talking to you, cover, the other one's not saying a thing. Just watching for, not just watching you, watching who might be walking this way, walking that way, watching out for a car. But that's, a, that's something we developed when a lot of cops were getting hurt. And a lot of, that was just one example. So a lot of training is reactive. So that doesn't answer your question because I don't have a good answer to like this training based on the sure. culture you're in. I do know that one of our values in our department is diversity and our training, we, we have training during, during our academy. We have, we have an entire, they're called learning domains. We have an entire learning domain on just understanding how to work with different cultures where whether that culture is um, Hispanic or whether that is a person from the LG, I always, I really apologize, but I get my acronyms messed up, but LGBTQT, whether it's from a, a person that's from that culture, we have different people that come in that represent lots of cultures and talk to us to help us understand. That happened during my academy um, and we went through that, that type of training. So there is cultural mm -hmm. training, but I don't know if the training is built based on the culture we live in. So what's, what's the problem then? I'm going to continue to come back to two things. Number one, I think racism is a problem. I think racism is a problem. And if you guys haven't read it, especially from, for my white friends out there, you're going to be, um, it's going to challenge you, but Jamil really recommend, he recommended a book early on when all this started, how to be an anti-racist, extremely challenging book. Um, not just cause it's challenging to hear or to read, but it's also, it's really smart. It's like, so you have to really sit and think and, and really think about what you're listening to. If you're doing on audible or reading and kind of go back and read it again, cause it's really heady and it's, um, which is good. Um, but also for, for some of my white friends, there's going to be some challenging things to embrace and to accept. But I think racism across the board is a problem, number one. And then power. Um, because, and those go together, and then I'll give you the second thing that I think is a problem. Because I think if you have someone who has a bias against any culture, race, ethnicity, anything at all, and they have power to utilize it, they're going to at some point. It's going to come out. Like you said last week something, you said, I'm always a little leery if they're going to have too much to drink because something's going to come out that I'm like, ah, now I see the real colors. I see, I can see that happening in anything that has power, any job that has power and you have an underlying bias, which we all have biases that we have to work through. If you're not careful in, in that position of power, you're going to misuse that power within your bias. I think that that happens at restaurants. So I think there's racism across the board. I think people are mistreated across the board in lots of different places. However, though, and I think I might've said this last week, but it's been, the, it's been the biggest way for me to compare it for me. You may not recognize it as quickly when the mater D just doesn't let you sit at a table as fast as he may seat somebody else because of his bias. But you're definitely going to see it when a person with real power to take away freedom and life, you're going to see it when they misuse their power. So I think, number one, there's racism and people in power that, that then can utilize that power to affect their bias, to, to 
you know, does that make sense? Am I making sense? I, then number two, I still will continue to say, I had this conversation this last week when I was telling everybody, hey, just so you guys know, I'm having these conversations online. Um, I think something that I don't want it to be heard as an excuse because it's not an excuse. This is what we signed up for. I think the stress and the toll and the, the danger of being in law enforcement, it takes its toll on a person over time. And then they stop seeing people as people and they go into survival mode. And then what, and then when you start, when you start doing that, when you start living because of the stress, because of the con, the, the things that you see, experience and feel when you start doing that and no longer really just view people as people, white, black, Hispanic, whatever. But at the end of the day, everybody like you, it is what it is. I just do my job and I go home kind of attitude. Now you run the risk of treating people poorly, no matter what, not just because you have the power, but because you're jaded. And I think the, 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 the mental impact that this has, the emotional impact that this job has on men and women who do it day in and day out, year after year, is tremendous. Somebody asked me a question, and I don't know if you want to jump to it, but I read it to you right before we came on. They asked, one of the questions was, um, I'll just read a small portion of it. They said, where... They said, um, the black man, I think referring to you, shared how he cried for days, but the officer led with a bank being burned and his anger at having to work the riots. It seemed like he got to a place where he wanted to listen and checked in on his black friend, but I think his initial lack of outrage at the murder is at the root of our problems. What is it that prevents this initial outrage? Why didn't it move him to tears like it did his friend? And I thought a lot about that question. I'm so grateful for honest questions. Um, first of all, I just want to say I'm, I'm grateful. And I, and I like to be challenged because I was initially very, and I still am, I'm challenged by that question. Why didn't I get drawn to tears by Mr. Floyd's murder? And I think one of the things that is, is in context to your question to me was where was the anger coming from? the anger came after being at the riots and having a whole lot of things thrown at me and, and those things. But, but nonetheless, why did I not show it in that kind of outrage? I was outraged at what that cop did that he murdered someone that he, but I will tell you for me and I'm learning this, I'm learning. My initial thought was not racism. My initial thought was not he killed a black man. My initial thought was how dare he kill a man? Here's another cop and I call it contempt of cop. Here's another person that is victim of contempt of cop. A cop who is jaded, who has lost his way, who as I'm learning now even more because I, I keep trying to read and learn and who should have been pulled from the field, in my opinion, long before this happened. And this person, like I said, black, white, or Hispanic, in my mind, fell victim to a jaded police officer who didn't see a human at all, who didn't see a person. He was just an angry cop where no humans were involved anyways. He was just mad. And to me, that is a bigger problem than what we're, than, than just, than, as it relates to racism, I think that is a bigger problem because I think that that jading and that hardening of the heart in order to survive, because I think it is a survival mechanism, emotional survival and physical survival, that hardening of the heart is what needs to be addressed and then across the country, racism as well has to be addressed. Because combine those two things, jaded and racist in the law enforcement world, and now you've got a really, now we're dealing with the worst of the worst. Does that answer your question? And hopefully it answers hers. But 
I think it, I think it does, you know, I, I think from my standpoint, um, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll push back on that a little bit. Um, because, you know, one of the things that I, I think we're in a really interesting time, you know, I've been, I would say, uh, I kept saying at the, in our last episode, I guess, officially, uh, how, how pro uh, human beings I am. And, um, and, you know, part of my experience with watching, you know, Mr. Floyd's um, um, death on the video that I think everyone saw it and probably were disturbed, um, or most people saw it and probably were disturbed. You know, but I, I, I think I think we also need to be really careful because, you know, I understand that, you know, you seeing the same thing that I'm seeing. I, I need I think we need to be careful that I don't try to lump you in a box and say Jeremy's supposed to see and feel everything that Jamil's supposed to see and feel to where I take your human beingness away from uh, the equation. Um, and all of the experience that you have had in your last, you know, maybe, I think you're older than me, maybe 40 plus years. Um, and, and, and I think that it's uh, sometimes can be troublesome and what damages, honestly, the conversation sometimes is when we start saying that there's necessarily something wrong with you because you didn't cry like I cried. Um, you're a completely different person than I am as well. And then also, you know, I, I think that sometimes, and this is what I want to push back on as well, is, uh, you know, I hear, like I said in the last episode, I, I really, man, I've been so fortunate to be able to see multiple sides of many different coins. Um, and so on one side, when I hear that you didn't see, um, 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 Mr. Floyd um, and the heinous way that he was killed um, as racism. Like that wasn't the first thought that popped into your mind. Well, I can clearly see how many would now point to your privilege, right? So Jeremy is white. You have the privilege, that absolute privilege, as a matter of fact, of not being able to see this as clear-cut racism because you're white and of course anyone who's not white let's just call it person of color um, can absolutely see this as uh, another instance of a racially motivated police officer killing an unarmed black man and that part of it is 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 not so much what i'm getting at it is the interpersonal uh, it's the way that we speak to each other and how we try to lump each other into these uh, into these uh, these foxholes, these boxes. And because you didn't necessarily see it the same way that I did, um, now there's you know something inherently wrong with you, or that you have this unabridged uh, privilege. And so. One of the reasons why I want to have these conversations is I think it's so important to to not do that um, because it gets in a way of having the conversation, right? Like if uh, if I'm coming to you and I've already sort of thrown you into this box that there's something inherently wrong with you because you didn't see it the way that I did. Now it's much, much more difficult to get on the same page. And I know this through um, training and coaching and, and leading thousands of people um, to where that's not the best method. Um, it could be you just have different experiences altogether. So why would you necessarily respond the same? I think we need to give space for people to also be people and to be true to um, um, to their own experiences as well. So when I saw that true, you know, I saw that and immediately um, um, I want to go to, wow, the optics of this looks really bad. It looks like another incident of, you know, white cop killing 
an unarmed black man. So the reason why I cried though is because of the stripping away of of um, dignity and seeing a man die like that. Um, I can't imagine if that was me. And I cried because I lost faith in humanity. And whenever I do that, I cry. Also, whenever I see um, and I get inspired by humanity, I cry as well. Um, so I was just watching like, um, what's the movie? The uh, uh, Remember the Titans. And there was a part in the movie to where, you know, uh, the white player says, like, you know, strong side. And the other guy says, like, right side or something. In that moment, I'm on my couch crying. Why? Because I love seeing people come together. Like, that inspires the hell out of me. So I think that we, I, I think that, you know, there's, I think we need to give space. And one of the troubling things that, have bothered me for quite some time is immediately painting people into these boxes um, that aren't always um, fair or even warranted, especially not moving the conversation forward. Yeah, yeah I am. Um, I want to answer because I'm actually monitoring the Facebook comments, so I want to make sure that I answer some people if that's okay with you. Um, and I agree. I think our experiences are different, so it leads to a different response. Um, I think what I have learned is to be aware of your experiences. So while I do think we need to give space to, to both of us, because we both have a different experience, what I, what I'm learning. And I think where the change came for me and how I viewed all of this. And by all of this, I don't mean one incident. I mean, everything that where we have come from and where we are as a nation, all of it. Um, and the reason that that's changed is I've learned, I'm learning why you would yes for humanity, but also why you would see that as not just a man being senselessly killed, but a black man being killed yet again. And, and so people still are like, but you didn't answer the question. Like, why were you, why was there a no emotion? I think what I want to be clear on is there was emotion. It was anger. Um, I think that there, that hearing me that was, I, was I sad for him? Absolutely. Oh man, I want to be clear. Yes. There is no reason for his, for Mr. Floyd's life to have been taken. None at all. None at all. I, didn't know all the details of what had happened. I had heard a little bit when I came into the station, um, when this first happened, when it wait for, I didn't know all the details. And then somebody played me. They're like, do you not, did you not see? I was so, I was angry because it was senseless. It was pointless. It was horrible because of my experience. My anger was, was directed at that cop. Not even, it was because that's, that how, how could he do this? And now let me tell you the other, the other part of where the anger came from as it relate to, related to going to the protests and the riots, specifically the riots. In my mind, and it, again, maybe it is because of privilege, and I totally can accept that, um, we were all on the same page. That's how I felt as, as, as a cop, we were all on the same page. This person was horrible. This person deserved to be arrested and tried and convicted for murder, which I believe he will be convicted. This person has no business wearing a badge or representing law enforcement at all. And I felt like we were all on the same page. The nation was on the same page. So when now I'm taking a, when I'm taking a brick to the head, when I believe the same thing and I agree that this was wrong, I, that's where the rest of my anger came from. But what I've learned and I'm learning is one time of us being on the same page does not take away the pain. It does not change everything overnight. So that I just wanted to make sure I, I, 
I address those things. That may not be the answer that, that people want, but my anger was initially directed at this cop for what he did to a person. And, and then my anger at the, at the riots was, I'm on the same team. Like, and so is the rest of the country. We're on the same team. Like, we, we're, we're here together on this, guys. And yet you hate me. That's what I initially thought. And like I told you, through conversations, I'm learning that, yeah, but that's one moment. That's one moment. We were on the same page for this one. But what about Rodney King in 92? We weren't on the same page for that one. And, and so, so I'm learning, you know, I, I'll just, I'll just kind of say, um, this has been, this has been uniquely good for me, um, because it's, it's forcing me. Okay. Let me say it like this. I wrote a book called the 12 shift. Uh, here's a plug for it. Go pick up this book. And and um, in this book, um, I talked about, you know, the 12 basically biggest mental mindset shifts that I've had over the last eight years that have sort of taken me from um, an unfulfilled life to an extremely fulfilled life. Um, and when I use the term fulfilled, I mean that in every sense of the word, um, relationally, spiritually, um, financially, um, physically, mentally, all these things. One of the things that I have learned through my training um, in my profession is to, to slow down a little bit, to slow down, to think a little bit more critically that, um, that things aren't always what they seem. Um, to exercise what we call metacognition, to think about the things that we think about. Um, and that's really helped me in terms of obviously growing the business and growing the organization and, and, and becoming more conscious. And so as we have started down this path, you know, my, my initial sort of assumption was that you know, this is, um, man, this is another, it's just another freaking incident of, you know, blatant racism, police brutality. Um, and I see that, um, that Cheryl uh, mentioned in the comments here that, you know, this would never happen to a white person. And so what it's forced me to do is it's forced me to go and do my own research um, as well, because initially, I think um, it's emotional, you know, and then you see all these things and it's just, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's frustrating. And then you look on your timeline and, and there's all of these, um, there's all of these in, in, in the world of uh, social psychology, they call it uh, uh, cognitive bias, bias, or they'll call it, um, um, cognitive dissonance, which I write a lot about in the 12 shifts, but I write about a lot with why my marriage was failing and why I needed to take a drastic change um, in the way that I saw things and approach things because I already had a conclusion that my wife was using me. She was nothing but quicksand. She never did the dishes, all these things. And because of that, I would immediately end uh, oftentimes wrongly, uh, make the case that she was that. Like, I wouldn't see the 100 or 200 times where she actually washed the dishes. I would see the two, the three, four, five times that she didn't. And for me, that was enough to create the case that there she is again, dude, just using me, this freaking quicksand, we're never going to move forward. Here she is just once again, not keeping up with her end of the bargain. And then I started to learn how to sort of question my own thoughts and beliefs, take a step back. And so that's what I've been doing here. And what I found is overwhelming evidence um, that, um, I'm almost nervous to say this. Um, <laughs> 
it's happening inside of me because of of the the uncomfortable sort of um, um, feeling, you know. And, and I, even within the last four weeks, specifically since you and I have started talking, and specifically since I've really started diving into what is what are the actual um, sort of evidence that is out there that we have from really credible sources, then um, then I, it's sort of, um, I pull back a little bit to, to Cheryl's comments that this would never happen to um, a white person because actually it happens more so uh, to white people. Um, and and um, one of the great challenges is is it's not really publicized the way that it is for black and brown people. And so, um, you know, that's created an extreme amount of dissonance within me, Jeremy, because I, I, want, I, want, to, I want to look at this and I want to say, you know, dang, man, like, this always happens. When I say this, I mean the killing of unarmed black men. I think that there's also overwhelming evidence that points to black and brown people getting stopped and frisked more, getting uh, having police officers put their hands on them more and things like that, which is obviously not right. But in terms of um, unarmed, you know, um, black and brown people being uh, uh, killed like this, um, that that just hasn't really stood up to what the numbers show. And so now, you know, I'm sort of, again, in the middle because uh, like I've been my whole life, because on one hand, I, I want to be, I, I, I want my beliefs to be right. And now they're starting to be jarred a little bit as I, dig in and really dig in and look for what the evidence actually is. And so, you know, these conversations are actually, they're really helping me because they're forcing me to be responsible and to really find out what, um, what the truth is, the way that, the way that I see it. And so my emotions even over much of what's gone on has, um, has shifted a little bit. And I just, I, I'm actually really grateful for these types of conversations um, because it's forcing me to also look introspectively and to look, look deeper and to question my own beliefs and even biases, which I think is really important to do. Yeah. And, I, and what's crazy is it's doing the same thing to me on the other side. This oh my gosh. So, and I think this is what we're, something beautiful is happening here because I think that if we could actually, and when I say we, I mean the nation, get a little bit more here mm -hmm. instead of so much more here. And that's what I see on so many issues. It doesn't even matter oftentimes what the issue is. It could be COVID-19. Right. We sort of started off here and now we're here. Yep. With Mr. Floyd, we sort of started off here and now we're here. How do we actually stay closer to what's here? And I think that that's the, the big question that I'm, I'm literally, I'm on a search to figure out because since we've started talking, I've spent more time researching than I ever have done before in my life. As have I on again. So you're researching. I, what I'm hearing you say, you're doing a lot of research on the on the true statistics when it comes to law enforcement and the way in the way we in 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 my line of work stop people, frisk people, kill people, and I've been doing more on the other side, going, what is the history of the way 
African American sure. or people of color or minority groups of any kind. But Jeremy, I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't think enough people do that. Uh, I think that, I think that what we do again is, I think that it's 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 easier to sort of watch a certain channel or watch our news feed, and we say, you know what? No, this sort of fits what my belief system already is. And so I'm, I'm never going to sort of really look into it. I'm not really going to dive deep into it. And it's, um, it's for me, I'm speaking to me, I was realizing that that was mental laziness for me. And I, and I personally, you know, that's even, I'm so like, that's how I wrote this book. That's how I wrote The Richest Man in Direct Sales was taking a step back, really being an observer of uh, my own biases. Mm -hmm. And in my world, we also call that living above the line. Right. Right. Really diving in and being conscious. And I think that we have so much unconscious activity, um, not just now, but for like ever, um, that it, 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 it's so divisive when we don't start challenging our own uh, thoughts. I feel like, I feel like what we're doing right now is really important, man. I really do. I do too. Because we, we do want to talk about the truth and we don't want to undermine anything. I never want to undermine someone else getting killed. Never, ever, ever. If you know me, you know, oh my God, I will literally throw myself in front of anyone who's getting justly killed. Um, I also think that we need to be honest about many things, many, many, many things that are when you look at the grand scheme of things, extremely important that we're not being honest about either. And we want to take statistical analysis as to what actually is happening. And I think as we dive into it, we start to see a different picture. The other thing is in the next seven days until the time that Jeremy and I come back on, I think it's important for us to really evaluate what we're looking at and evaluate the sort of images and the rhetoric that is being given to us. For example, and I found myself being emotionally entrenched by this, Jeremy. Uh, somebody on my Instagram has sent me a picture of basically, I think it was um, a statue of Abraham Lincoln and it looked like he was uh, petting a slave. And right away, emotionally, I was like, dude, no, that is not cool, right? And the picture from the angle literally looked like he was testing the slave who was kneeling down at his feet. And so I went and did my research. And I started researching the monument, the statue, um, the time frame, uh, the historical accounts, the events, all these things. And if you look at the same picture from a different angle, you see it completely different. But if you looked at it when they took the shot from straight on, it looked like he was petting the slave. But then you look at the shot in the picture from a different angle, and it's a completely different picture. So what's happening is I literally almost ruined my whole morning if I would not have questioned and actually went and started doing research on what was actually sent to me. This is what I talk about, the, the, the mental laziness that oftentimes we will see. And so uh, my encouragement is, yes, next week, I'm so excited to jump on and talk about more things and answer more questions and talk about our standpoints on them and all those things. But I also want to encourage everyone to, to think and to really look into things as well. As it relates to law enforcement, because that's what I am right now. Um, sure. how do we move forward? What is expected of me? And I've heard some, I've had conversations and I just want you to know, I've had conversations with people saying, well, I expect you to step up and say something when you see something, which makes an assumption that I won't. 
Um, and, and so I, I want, I would like to know a little bit more than that. Like I want more than just, we'll say something. What are, what are some, some tangible steps that, that will build true trust? Because I don't, I hate to drop a bomb and leave this, but I'm about to, um, because I just watched in my town, uh, an officer involved shooting that within like literally it felt like minutes. So I, I don't want to say that, but in a very short period of time, immediately generated a, a protest about the shooting that lasted hours to the point where, I mean, the police department is putting out pictures. They're showing service, like they're putting everything out to being asked and they're still being like questioned. So I, so I start to go, well, what do you, what, what is wanted? Like, is it just don't enforce it? So, so like, I would like some thought-filled questions or comments or thoughts on how do we take steps to progress? Cause I told you last week, one of the things that happens in any negotiation is we go through the screw you hour. But if we don't get to active listening, which I think you and I are trying to do is listen to each other, hear each other. And then we don't start building some kind of rapport. We will never see behavioral change. So instead of yelling at each other, what are some of the things we can do to start moving forward? That would be something that I'd like to see next week in some of the comments and questions that we get. It would be really, that would be helpful so that we have a, a direction to talk even more. Should be good. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. If you want to be a part of the conversation, go to negotiatingforlife.com right now. Give us your question. Give us your topic. And hey, subscribe to the podcast because there's more where this came from.